out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American garage rock band all the way from Pittsburgh. It is the one and only The Cynics because I recently spoke to their main man, Greg Kostovich, to find out more about life, love and poetry and much more. And also about the record label that he uh, started, which was um, titled Get Hit Records, which is still going strong today. So this is the interview with Greg. You're going to find out more about the band, the record label, and so much more. Anyway, after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Greg, it's over to you. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, my parents used to listen to artists, you know, Sinatra, Louis Prima. So I remember I could barely stand up. I was learning to walk. I was using the record player to hold me up to start standing. And I remember my mother with that big taboo bottle of cologne squeezing that pumper. And I go, mommy, where are you going? She goes, we're going to see Louis Prima, honey. And I was trying to figure out how the record they were playing was Louis Prima, just a gigolo, how a band got pressed in that record. So, you know, it's, it's an LSD moment, you know, pre, the, the brain wasn't totally, it was awesome. But yes. I did, that was my first experience in music. But it was probably, I have to say, you know, there was Elvis and all that. I missed all that. My brother was into that because he was 12 years older. But, you know, I'm sure you've heard this over and over again, but it was the Beatles and Ed Sullivan that had the most impact. Yes. I saw that. I said, ah, I got to do that. So I begged my parents from 64 on that whole year for a guitar. And they finally bought me a guitar. And I really never stopped since. I've been playing since five. Yes, well, there you go. That's that's kind of hours well spent, as as it was. It um, Malcolm Gladwell said about the ten thousand hours of practice before you hit well, perfection. No yeah. So that's always good. So were your parents then quite hip and groovy in that sense of being kind of turned on to music? Was, my, my mother was a housewife, but she, you know she would make sure I had the sandbox to play in and create but she didn't have any participation. My dad was a trumpet player in, in big bands before World War II. Yes. And when that happened, he got, I think he had like scarred lung or something. So he didn't go and he cried because he wanted to die with his friends, basically. But a lot of the big band artists didn't come back alive, you know. No. And if they did, they weren't themselves anymore. And that whole market for big bands turned into quartets and sextets. So he, I watched him kind of be depressed from that point on, you know, right. he was always depressed about never playing in the sixties because there was really no big band spot back. The whole, you know, the Beatles, he, he didn't like, you know, he mop heads, you know, any, any kind of slur, they were flying left and right, you know, but I, I think he did it to instigate me more, but my mother loved it. Like they took me to see the who in 67, Wow. Uh, I got to see the Rolling Stones first tour at Westview Park. I got to see the Blues Magoo. So my mom really went out of her way to make sure because she knew I loved music so much. And I was so fascinated with rock bands, whether they're American Garage or, you know, a British Invasion, that she went out of her way to make sure I went. And, you know, we tried to see the Beach Boys. We tried to see the Beatles. Mamas and the Papas, they all sold out. 
Right. But I did get around a lot, and they 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 aided to it. Yeah, I, Ryan Jones and Keith Richards walked out of that station, that that bronze station wagon with the clothes hanger for Antenna, and walked right by me and smelled like bo or marijuana. I couldn't, you know, I didn't. I'm five years old, so I don't know if it's. It was probably marijuana, maybe both. It was because it I smells the same. Yes, absolutely. So I remember this shit like it was yesterday, and I wish I could go back to it, but it's not going to happen. Well, quite. That was amazing. So your dad was a big brand player. It was kind of, well, why I was kind of player, yeah. Yes, because sure. because I came from you know the UK in East Anglia, where we had about thirty Air Force bases that were mostly you know were occupied right. by the Americans. So there's a lot of stories of you know the Americans in in this kind of region they they came over you know two three thousand in each little village that only had about 500 people so you could imagine the impact the americans made and also you know glenn miller was you know he was kind of playing around these kind of villages basically oh, yeah. you know stan kenton did it too we had a train that went through cannonsburg which is a little village where i grew up it's still there and the population never grew it's still 3300 people the train station used to go by for the mills, you know, for the feed for all the farmers and all the farming was done there. So it'd go to Pittsburgh or further out. So Stan Kenton, since it was an easy drop, he'd go up to the armory and play Peggy Lee. I mean, I heard all this MC5 played there when I was a kid. I probably was at the show and didn't know any better, you know. <laughs> yes, like you said, you wish you could go back. Um, and, and just kind of appreciate it even more. I guess at the time we all just take things for granted when they're happening, but then later on we we suddenly realize sometimes, how special. Yeah, now I actually every moment I try and they're precious, you know, because yes. the graveyard's calling. <laughs> <laughs> on that cheerful note. So when you got to the sort of early 70s, were you kind of at that stage of vaguely leaving school or college uh, school at that stage or going to college? In the 70s, early 70s? Or... Yeah. So you were born, was it about 1950? 59, yeah. 50, oh, right. So it would have been the mid-70s that you would have been getting to that age where you were 16. Yeah, I didn't want to go to college. I just wanted to play rock and roll. I couldn't wait to graduate. And actually, my senior year, my father had gotten got killed at his work. So that kind of changed things. And then all of a sudden, I had, a, you know, it was free to go to college because I, I was on that uh, what do you call it like a social yes sort of social benefit. plan because my dad was killed so as long as i stayed and went to you know what it was business management it bored me to tears uh salesmanship class i was like okay instead of pretending like rodney dangerfield and back to school i says i'm not going to sell widgets anymore i'm going to go do it for real and i never thought i'd be peddling records and stuff but you know that I was natural. I really love music. And I said, why not be the, I was always called the Pied Piper. I turned all my village on to music. Uh, my, my house, my attic had, was 3000 albums. People would come and borrow the records. We'd turn each other on, you know, it led to smoking pot in the corner and all that other stuff. But yes. you know what I would do? I, I miss all those guys. I would do it all over again. But, um, and you, so you That's kept. Kind the... of what happened is I dropped out. I, I I said fuck college, you know, and and I'm going to get real and go to work for real and and do my business, which was the the, the music industry. You know. Yes. Yes. Did you keep playing? Were you often or constantly playing guitar at this stage from the age of five when you first got it? Yeah. To... I, I, a lot of practice in my room. Practice. 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 You know, when Black Sabbath came here in '68 as Earth. 
I accidentally was going to a Pittsburgh Pirate baseball game with my father, a doubleheader. They called it a twinite doubleheader. And we walked through CMU Shenley Park and Black Sabbath, early Black Sabbath was playing at the college there. And I heard these like heavy, you know, this heavy guitar sound. It was like Frankenstein-ish, you know. And yes. I remember that's, I gravitated to this heavy sound and I got a glimpse of them, but my dad says, okay, come on, we got to go, you know. But if I recall, I think some of the dry branches in the trees were splintering out of the tree because they were <laughs> so heavy and loud. I, I remember it was just really awesome, but it, it's true. It did happen. Yes, absolutely. Because that kind of period, I mean, I was kind of quite young at that stage, you know, sort of 73. But I had an older brother who was five, seven years older than me. He was really into prog rock. So he had all those albums like Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash. But he did have the Black Sabbath and Deep Purple albums as well. So I got quite excited yeah. by, by rock and roll. Did they, you... Did you Those start fans. sort of did you sort of start consuming any type of music during the 70s? I I I tried to consume and Stacy's well aware of it. I I think I've consumed what a million or two two million records here. <laughs> I mean, I love music, so I I I I buy all kind, you know, from easy listening, uh jazz, you know, garage rock. Even heavy metal stuff, you know, uh, I like the, I don't like the hair metal, you know, poser stuff, no. but Black Sabbath, really, when we get into a metal fight, I said, listen, there's only really one metal bit. ACDC is good. I said, they're, they're number two, but Black Sabbath is all you need. They're, they're yes. the best freaking band ever. You know? Yes, this is true. And I think they recorded that first album in an afternoon. Deep Purple wasn't bad. Deep Purple wasn't bad. Yeah, they've they haven't aged as well as Deep Black Sabbath. I think Black Sabbath. I think with a lot of metal bands, the lyrics sometimes can let them down. So, um, but Black Sabbath were brilliant. So, um, yeah, let's... I mean, come on, when you hear War Pigs with what's going on today, it it really hits hard in the heart. You know, yes, Paranoid was like the first song that uh, expressed that. I have maybe bipolar, like we call it bipolar, emotional, uh, um, you know, mental problems. We, you know, that's a bad, you know, phrase. Now you know how to say mental. I like saying I've gone mental, you know, <laughs> but, but you can't say that. You can't say yes. Well, this is true. But yes, that, that line finished with my woman because she couldn't help me with my mind. It's a classic, isn't it? Let's face it. And Sabbath, bloody Sabbath, you know, so. Um, yep. Yeah. All those lyrics are stunning. So what was it like when suddenly, because you were at that right age for the punk rock moment, wasn't it? Did did you sort of get excited by punk? Well, that's the good good point. Um, around 74, 75, all those great metal bands and rock bands, that's kind of what was happening after Garage, you know. Because um, 66 was a great year. 67 was the summer of hate. 66 was a very energy, probably the best year for American Garage. And um, 77 came around because 74 to 76-ish, uh, there's a couple, you know, New York Dolls, there's a couple good ones. But all the rock bands got overblown and, you know, you know, I need the, you know, brown, no, no brown M&Ms, you know, and all that silly shit on a rider. And like Led Zeppelin were really overblown and overrated at that point. Everybody was drugged out. It wasn't fun anymore. I started getting puked on at concerts. I said, fuck this shit. I'm out of here. I went to a Ramon show at the decade and said, holy fucking shit. You know, I just stumbled into it as a, 
you know, let me go have a, a drink. I heard, you know, things about this band. And I got talked into going. I see the Ramones. They blow my shit away. And I'm like, holy fuck. It's like the Beach Boys with long hair and leather jackets, you know, playing on 10. And that's exactly what it was. It was fun, three chord rock and roll. And it gave me a lease on life to play and say I could write songs like that. And I had hope into writing riffs, simple riffs, like I can't get no satisfaction or Ramones that inspired the cynics. Yes, absolutely. And, and that was the punk rock. That whole movement was great. And we had Michael and I both were in, you know, some of the early punk bands here. My original drummer, Bill, was the first person of a mohawk. Then I get a mohawk. You know, we we were troublemakers. There was three years of really bad trouble. I mean, Michael's still drinking three fifths a day at 60 years old. I can still throw down and get crazy, but I don't like the mornings. You know, I don't want to like I don't like feeling bad. And I and I I really laid off the narcotics and the, you know, I I, I smoke pot three times a year if I'm lucky. You know, yes. It's, it's it's probably yes, I'm high off a glass of water right now talking to you. I know this is true. We all do that. It's interesting because that move that musical shift really was highlighted with this guy called John Peel, who was the DJ right. in this, this country, who, who was part of the 60s and then the 70s. And I think he was playing Jackson Brown and the Grateful Dead and then suddenly getting a bit Thank disillusioned. With, it, and then suddenly the Ramones and then the Damned came along and it was like, okay, this is, I can put those records to one side. There is a new, there's new kids in town and um, this is a new scene. So I think he kind of just went with that kind of energy. So when what? you were... When you were sort of growing up, where, what town sort of place were you living? I was living in Cannonsburg at my parents' house back in the early 60s. What well, you're talking about after the 70s or? No, just during that period of when you were still, still at, um, at home at college and then your first job. Where, I just wonder where you were living then. Yeah, I was still at the house, you know, and then it would be the apartment thing, girlfriend thing, you know, screw up, go back home. But it wasn't until about 23 that I kind of, you know, I was catapulting from 20 to 23 through the punk thing. And I got really into the drugs and I wanted out. I was getting kind of stupid, like the germs, Darby crash. And uh, I got, uh, there was an intervention by the police, let's put it that way. And it sobered me up and I felt that there was something more important in this life. To, that I I had to figure it out though, and it was basically get back to your guitar, asshole. This is and I and I was tripping on acid one day, and I wasn't deciding yet, but I I knew I had to find myself, and I happened to take a, a hit of acid or two hits of acid, and I had played the Blues Magoo psychedelic lollipop. I'm like, God, Greg, what the fuck? You saw them when you were six years old, and it inspired you in the Who, you know to play guitar and you turned your back on this kind of music. And I said, that's it. I'm going to start a band that sounds like this. I'm going to start a label to put it on in a distribution. Just like that. It was like a light switch the next morning. I had my a clear mind and I never stopped since. I haven't tripped because I didn't want to reverse the polarity either. No, my God. Trip again. I'm scared I'll reverse everything. I'll fail. Fuck up. You know? <laughs> the <blues laughs> do. I did an interview with Pepe, Pepe recently. So, um, yeah, he, I, I'm glad he's still alive because I haven't seen him in like five, because COVID kind of, I lost touch with everybody. We're all in isolation. We were in like, I, because, you know, Pepe, you would run into him in New York when you played the village under, you know what I mean? Yes. But, uh, he's an amazing, he, amazing guitar player. 
I think he's in Florida now, isn't he? I think that's possibly. Yeah. When little Steven did the reunions, they showed up. The pretty things were there and Phil and Dick Taylor were in the street one day. This is the weekend before the trade center. Okay. And we, we had, we headlined one night, the pretty things headlined the next night. And I, I bumped into Phil and Dick and they, somebody dropped a nickel or a dime in the street. And he goes, Hey, Hey Dick, look, Phil says to Dick, hey, here, here's the royalties I owe you. So I knew right away when you're talking about a nickel or 10 cent royalty, you know that they never really got paid their royalties for their hits, you know. <laughs> and I just chuckled because it really hasn't changed that much, you know. No, no, not with Spotify anyway. Yes, dear old. And also you mentioned Blue Cheer earlier as well, which was. Um, oh, my God, yeah. What a band! What a sound! Because in the UK, I mean, what you know, it was slightly different. Well, it's quite a lot different, really. We got the you know, seventy nine Thatcher gets in. You know, the Conservative government, which is kind of quite a big thing in this, in our country. You had Reagan, and then we had sort of the Falkland War, which kind of polarized a lot of people. And then we had, you know, the Greenham Common. We all thought we were going to be nuked, and then there was the miners' strike. You know, Britain was a bit kind of wrecked at that stage and sort of really, you know, quite poor. What was it like for you sort of that in that transition between the late 70s and early 80s? Was that your kind of period where you were sort of moving out of your, you mentioned your LSD phase? Was that was that the kind of what was happening for you at that moment? Well, I, I think 80, 80 was the intervention. 83 is where the cynics came. I worked at Ides Records. Now they call it Ides Entertainment. It was a great comic book store. Actually, Geezer Butler buys comics there. Every time they come through here, him and his son come, and they spend five, six grand on comics. I mean, it's a Metallica had dropped thirty grand there on comic books. So I mean, so it's you know, and I worked there for about eight years, uh, six years as a buyer, and um, you know, I was I was I was learning, and I didn't know that I you know I was learning the ropes of the music industry, the distribution independently. You know, I'd buy Misfits records, you know, create a scene here, you know, a punk rock and hardcore scene. And then the garage scene in 84, when I found myself with the Cynics, I started looking at the Pandoras, the Vipers, the Fuzz Tones. We started booking them and trying to, and we actually created a scene where we were selling out the clubs. But it took about four years or five years of hard work. Yes. And my buddy Mike Lavella that worked with me, he started Half-Life, Real Enemy, you know, he he's buddies with Glenn Danzig and all the punks people, but they all came through, you know, and, and we all knew each other. But um, yes, that's kind of what happened between 83. Of course, it was all anti-Reagan. You know, Reagan instigated all of it. You, know? <laughs> I mean, you had you had a lot of the hair bands, the goth bands I liked. I like Susie and the Banshees was one of my favorite goth bands. Cure. Still love the Cure um the smiths i liked everybody picked on me for liking the smith because morsey was a wimp blah 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 and i'm like hey, look johnny mars guitar playing's fucking great fuck off you know <laughs> and, and they are good i mean morsey's a pain in the ass i know he's a whiner and he's you know he, he has issues i get it you know but yes uh, well so uh, fantastic so well it was interesting because in this country you know we had that kind of post-punk then we had there was golf there was I suppose new romantics. There was new Paisley, which kind of came along, and right. then and then eighty three, the Smiths happened. And for me, five years. You know, I think a band has that kind of can have that impact where they just work twenty four seven, and then they implode, explode, and all that kind of malarkey. But from eighty three, from eighty three to eighty seven, you know, I was a huge Smiths fan. So okay, it, it changed. It changed everything really lyrically and musically. It was just stunning. But 
Yes, dear old Morrissey. He confuses us all now. So um, that's like <laughs> I know, I know. Yes. So when you when when the cynic started, did you were you on a mission at this stage? Yeah, it, that was like it got to the point where people were cutting their hair, and I said, "Well, fuck it, I'm going to start growing my hair out." It was like an anti-statement of the shorter. You know, it's just a mood swing. You know, basically. And, and and we've all done it. You know, Michael did it. You know, we said, fine. the Dead Boys were a long hair rock band. And then, you know, the pistols came through and then all of a sudden they get a haircut. So we started throwing beer cans at them. But, you know, we did the same thing. We should. Jello Biafra had long hair. Uh, the Cramps had, you know, hippies, you know. But um, you get your shit together, you find your image and, and you know, and, and, and the image is works with the sound you have and you do you have the. Uh, something go when you create a scene you know now the cynics don't look like we, you know but we still are pretty fucking cool and we play you know we still play like we're 17 years old you know we we have a i i would not michael and i would not play if we felt we lost a step and yes we haven't we haven't at 60 years old we have not well, it's still quite young. We still want the ten dollars. We're pissed off. You know. <laughs> so your was your first studio recording and, and singles that painted my heart. Yeah, yeah. And well, actually, you... the the first one we were experimenting in the basement of uh, that's where Mike Lavella from Half Life lived. It was Chesterfield Street in Oakland, Pittsburgh, uh, near CMU and Pitt. And um, we ran a, a snake and a you know microphone, and he had the con- Dave Kleeman had the control the mixer and reel to reel upstairs, and we did sixty nine for the fan club, and tried Mark out. Mark at the time was the first singer. He just passed away last year. Uh, he did Friday night, I think, little little jingle type of tune, two and a half minutes. Yeah. And that was the first single, but it wasn't released till after Pain in My Heart. Mark did sing on Pain in My Heart. That was a magical vibe. It was going in a real studio for the first time. And um, I remember I go, I go, God, you know, I got I got to do a solo. It's coming up. And I just pr- I did a little prayer as I'm playing the rhythm riffs in the second verse, knowing my spot's coming. Because, you know, I'm not thinking overdub, right? Yes. And and something just came over me and all that, the solo, I still, it gives me goosebumps because it just almost like television or something, but it just came out of nowhere. And it just, I can't tell you, I could play it now, but it was magic. It was one take, no overdub. And there was, it, it, you know, Richard was playing rhythm guitar. So there's a rhythm guitar player, but I just let it fly and it all just came out one take and that was it. Yes. That's the magic. That happens a lot. And I wait for it. I always try and wait. Now it's been 12 years, you know, I'm waiting. But we have six good killer tunes. And I reached out to Michael. Yeah, this is Michael. It's been five months since we talked about rehearsing every other day here. Yes. I said, I think it's time to get off our fucking asses. Time is not on our side. Let's write four or five more. I have riffs. Let's get together, get it done, fly the rest of the band over from Spain, our rhythm sections from Astorias. I said, get their asses here. Let's record. Let's play a couple select dates while we're here to have fun. And let's finish the album because right now the six sketches are friggin' great. So I want it to be a 10 to 12 song, really good comeback record. And then we'll probably do a world tour. Excellent. This is good. I was watching your the, the tour in um, the last European tour, which is 07. That was amazing. I mean... 
it rocked, didn't it? It was rocking. That was good. Then, so so at the same time as the band, you start a label as well. Yeah, get hip. Get hip. So, what was the what was was that kind of part of your early, you know, business school training? Did you sort of feel probably? That... I mean, you know, it got to the point where I mean, I hold on a sec. I thought I turned my phone off. Oh, there you go. It Hang keeps on. it real. Oh, that's fine. It's spam. It's spam. Hold on. It makes you feel wanted, though, doesn't it, really? Even yeah, spam. Fucking jag-offs. So, um, yes. So get here. We, the label the, bullshit. Um, the, but the, half the, it is, I'm not going to name names, but every label I felt, of course, no one's going to have the enthusiasm because Stacey's probably thinking I'm nuts. No one has the enthusiasm like me, and I expected people to have that enthusiasm about any band. I have the same enthusiasm towards all the groups I've signed to, yes. whether they believe it or not, whether they worked. Most of the bands, I invested 10, 12 grand on the manufacturing of the album and a CD to get the thousand units started for them on both configurations, and usually they quit after the record comes out. So basically, you're a million dollars in debt from all your 30 years of hard work because none of the bands wanted to believe in themselves like I did. So yeah. that's my mistake. But I believed also that the label owner should have felt that way towards us. And I said, you know what? It came to the point where, okay, then let's do it ourselves. Then you find out distribution felt the same way. They were lazy, lame. You know, there was a lot of big, like, you know, distributors like Rough Trade and, you know, big name distributors in the 80s, Caroline Records. They're out of business. The Universal owns them. I mean, everybody was lazy. If it didn't sell itself, uh, they didn't call you back or pay you. So I said, well, I'll start my own distro and I'll be honest and pay people and, and work hard. And that's kind of how it all developed. And it's been 33 years now on yes. my own terms against free. So that, That's very impressive, actually. you were. I think Robert Lloyd, who was in the Nightingales, he started Vindaloo Records. And um, yes, and I think that was quite successful. He didn't, he didn't keep it going for 30 plus years i yeah. think he did it for about five and then just got you know exhausted i, I may go i thought i was going to be out by 66 and my lease here at the warehouse since 88 has it runs out in three years but i may go and get a five-year extension and go to seven. i mean i like i like it i i mean i i what else would i want to do it's this this and i want to play rock and roll i want to manufacture rock and roll i want to help bands but i'm scaling back on helping others yes uh, but i i have back catalog that like miracle workers needs repressed you know gore gore girls you know a lot of garage bands need repressed because they've been out of print so i'm trying to that's a whole nother you know saga is trying to get records pressed on time it doesn't exist anymore no you know, no <clears throat> five six months waiting period per title yes so when as 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 we're trundling through the 80s with great enthusiasm your first album that comes out this is kind of in is it 80 87 which is probably what i would prefer yeah, think of yeah. as probably one of the great years of music you had blue train station that's yep. right so then did you at that stage had you built up quite a following and, and a live reputation it really the the one thing I knew about Blue Train is the very first day it got to New York City, I got a phone call from Final Vinyl, and Gary Bellaban walked in the store and goes, "Man, who the fuck's this?" We got our first New York City gig just like that because he, the guy from Final Vinyl, did me a favor. He was playing like, "Hey, let me check out this band" because it looked like, except for Bill in the middle, you know, in the computer, the poor drummer, computer nerd. It looks like it come out of the 60s. It was like a Kinks controversy album or something, you know. 
and nobody knew what you know generation it was from. And Steve was a very good artist. Our bass player did all the artwork. We did all the handbills, the flyers, like the Fillmore. He became pretty tight with uh, Mouse and Kelly from you know did all the Frisco Fillmore stuff. They became pen pals and stuff like that. Yes. And did you find that going into the studio, did you have a producer who was kind of who got the sound that you were looking for? That was close, but they they had more modern gear. They were trying to lean towards the 80s with that wax paper drum sound. And it's a little bit there. Um, some things were put to tape wrong, but there's nothing you can do about it. Like the first three records, we've we had those problems. Yes. Well, the, the, we had the Trevor Horn production sound, didn't we, of ABC and Frankie and Tina Turner and people like that, that kind of very... Is it reverb? A lot of reverb on the. Well, it was more trebly. I I called it cocaine ears. Or you know, I think the cocaine made your ears tighter and stuff. So you wanted more treble. You know, as you're chopping lines of blow, you want more treble. <laughs> I saw that pattern going on. You know, I mean, yes. replacements. Tim is thin. That's a great sounding record, but the cocaine behind the scenes, it turned into tin. You know, and everyone's going for that. Like Gary Newman did a here in my car, and every so people were using the syndromes and stuff. It it, it, it killed a, the Plimsolls' first album would have been a masterpiece, but it's got the cocaine treble. If, you, <laughs> if it came, if it went down warm nowadays, that you could do, or like in the '60s when they had used tube gear, that Plimsolls' first album would have sounded fantastic. Yes, well, it's interesting because I uh, Greg Norton from Husker Do, I interviewed him a few weeks ago, and I did sort of mention that the third, their last album, Warehouse, when you listen to it now, it's quite thin and tinny, and it's not as right. kind of nice the as Candy Apple. Enjoy the Creeps album. It's on the new in the new Shindig magazine that we just got in today, mm. uh, and uh, they talk about the Creeps. Fantastic first album. Looks sixty, sounds like Van Morrison and them. But it's really trebly, really trebly. Yes, this is true. So there you go, cocaine. I, I had not no idea. I think that. I think it's cocaine. Yeah, cocaine. It's yeah. cocaine. Do you you'd sort of changed your lead singer at that early stage. Was that quite traumatic for the band, or was that all right? No, it was traumatic for Mark. You know, he was such a great person, and um, you know, we all the original four got, it was Billboard, Pam Reiner, Mark Karisman, and and myself. And we all had record collections and we all loved the same type of music. And we would turn it like, hey, you got to check out Big Star. You got to check out Silver Apples. We traded ideas and records with each other and we learned from it. Um, there, we were consuming music all day, you know, seven days a week. If we weren't rehearsing, we stopped at Jerry's Records. At that time, it was called Garbage Records. We'd go to Record Graveyard. You know, we'd go to Ides when it was a, just a comic book store and a small little record boutique. And we would buy records and, and, and we spent pretty much all our money from our job on records or guitars or equipment, you know, to to do that. We were all soulmates. But Mark couldn't like we want to do a nice ballad. Mark could do the growlers, the garage punk growlers. But when we, we want to do a like a Birdsian type thing, it just he, it was like someone stepped on a cat's tail. And <laughs> it was. And then and Michael could do all the, he had all the range, you know, and Michael was in this band called The Wake that I used to do sound for. And to tell you the truth, The Wake was before The Smiths and they sounded like The Smiths, a little more edge, 
But they, he was like Morrissey before Morrissey existed, like in 1980 and 79. Yeah. Right. So he has a very, he loved, but David Bowie is his favorite artist. So he has that Bowie-esque voice. And you could, you could tell in all the gnarl that, you know, when you listen to some of the cynics later stuff with ballads, he has the David, and he's a very good lyricist. He's a, he's a good writer. It's just that, you know, I slowed down on the party and he's still going 100 mile per hour. It's not good. I love him. It's funny, but it's not funny. You know? No, but um, impressive that he's he still can do it. So was that yeah, kind yeah. of was that a difficult moment? Did you have a difficult conversation with Mark at that stage in '85? Oh, it was brutal. We told him that he's no longer in the band, and then the first night we had a rehearsal with Michael, Mark shows up like he wasn't fired or let go, and he pats uh, Michael on the back. He goes, "Oh, Sammy Dave," and I'm like, "Wow, I'll never forget it." You know, but. Mark's, you know, we lost him, but I think in spirit he's there. If we yes, yeah. it's 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 a tricky world. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah. It, it put it us all in awkward. We felt bad, you know, because he didn't want to leave. You know, it was a it was the only thing he really had. You know? Yes, but then you were because because with a lot of bands I've done interviewed, they, you know, they have a bit of a five year narrative in this country. You know, they have the twelve month honeymoon period. You know, John Peel would play a single, then they'd get the John Peel session, which was four tracks. And then that first album, the transit band going around the country, because, you know, the UK is so tiny, isn't it? And then, you know, the second, third album, things are quite of getting a bit hard and a bit difficult. What was it like when you did your follow-up album, um, 12 Flights Up? Was, was, the, was, was the band sort of gelling at this stage? The When we got Becky and uh, Steve in the group, who played bass? Becky added. You know, we had a keys. That well, they were on Blue Train Station too. But yeah, Twelve Flights Up was a little more. We were on, like we knew what we wanted, and then I think Steve and Becky started kind of quarreling, and Becky didn't feel wanted anymore, so she left halfway through Rock and Roll. But I called her in to play on two songs as a going away and goodbye, and then we turned into the quartet guys you know and we said let's all dress black we're going on fucking black like johnny cash we're going on fucking black and we're going to play on 10 and it was balls out and we turned into a fucking rock, a serious rock band and we thought well, okay all the garage purists are going to be pissed off at us but we didn't give a fuck because we just said the record sounds really good when we were just testing it out in the van after the session was mixed i remember before i went into the club i'm like me and steve were in Oakland, in, on the side of the street in the van, playing it really loud to ourselves and going, holy fuck, this sounds mammoth. But we were concerned. And some people said, oh, you know, they sold out. They're more of a rock band. But you know what? We sold like 10,000 records in a month. Yes. Well, there you go. It's, it's a great record. It's it's a cult. It's going to be a cult record way after I'm dead and gone, like the Velvet's first album, like the Stooges' first two records. I do believe it because I... I can't escape it. We've always tried to do one better. We have some better songwriting here and there. But when you listen to rock and roll, it's pretty pissed off from head to toe. And the last track, we go, okay, let's blow their mind and do a beautiful ballad just to chill out and rest your ears. And that's how we close the album with The Room, which yes. was a Wake song. That was an early Wake song. That's Michael's band that sounded like the Smiths. Fantastic. Check it that's out. Yeah, I will. I will. How did you? I mean, one thing that sort of knocked out a lot of UK bands was kind of 87, the Smiths break up, 
I know I keep on about them, yeah. which is kind of an end of a chapter. But then ecstasy comes along and people want yeah. to start, you know, there's the dance scene, the Manchester scene. Then there's the Seattle grunge scene. And then there's a different new decade. I always think that kind of shifts the kind of consciousness a bit. What was it like for you in a band at that stage, wondering what to do, you know, to follow up rock and roll? What was what was your kind of thinking you, at that stage? You, you, you're you're nailing every issue. I'm I'm impressed. Like you, it's almost. I'm, and I'm I'm not. Listen, I'm not kissing your hiney because you're interviewing <laughs> me. But I noticed that when Stacy just said, "Let me ask some, you know, some of the questions to feel the whole thing out." I was impressed with the questions. I'm like, my God, it's like you read, like your your steps are what we lived. And I, I don't, and like, how could you do your homework on a cynic? You wouldn't know what we did, but it's the, that whole, the way the music culture flowed in chronological order, you nailed it. Um, as far as the, when grunge happened, we played Seattle at the Vogue and everybody in those grunge bands were at the cynic show. And we turned on Mud Honey, and that's where they learned the fuzz box in high school. Right. And later on, Steve, like the last year they came through here, we played with them. I said, Steve, when did you get your first fuzz? He goes, well, to tell you the truth, when I bought the Cynics No Way single, I go, what the fuck was that at Fallout Records? They said, oh, it's a fuzz box. And he went out and bought a Big Muff, and that started that super Big Muff album of theirs. Yeah, so I said, Steve, if you would say that in your documentary, it would help us sell more records, you know? Yeah. So. It's that kind of stuff, you know, that they inspired Nirvana and they never got any credit for the grunge scene, Mud Honey. They're no. really they're the first grunge band, but they got no credit of starting. Nirvana gets the credit. Mud Honey inspired Nirvana. Dan was in Nirvana temporarily, the drummer. So these are the kind of funny things that keep like we've inspired a lot of bands, but, you know, we're not, and I don't care. I'm, you know, Michael and I, we, the, the whole band right now, the four of us, we have a bond like the Beatles where we are one and we love each other. We joke around like the three stooges with each other. Uh, you know, Michael was a little sometimes prima donna, but you know, I wouldn't want to be the singer and that's all you had was a microphone. I, I wouldn't want that job. You have to be a prima donna to have that job. I wouldn't, I, I have to have a guitar. You got to yes. hide behind something, you know, the drummer, I just want to play. I just want to bash the drums. You know, I love music. Every once in a while, I get a blow job. Maybe uh, I need a flat. You know, my records. I don't. I need to eat a meal a day. All I want to do is play. That's a. That's what you want. You want a fucking musician that loves to play music. You know. So we found ourselves in 2007, and we've been together that long. But um, getting back to the grunge thing, we inspired those grunge bands. But it when they got popular in Europe. And Epitaph, too, like Bad Religion, everything on it, no effects, all those bands. I watched the audience, their whole taste towards us. Half of them were phony. They were just going on trend after trend and following the trends. We lost, the, we went back to Europe in 92 and start losing that following. And from 92 on, it was really, really difficult till 2000. And then people were going, wow, you know, these guys are old. They're 40 years old, 2000. What the fuck are they doing? And we pummeled them. Okay, but it, it wasn't until maybe 2012 or 15 that now everybody knows who the cynics are and appreciate it. And, and no one cares about what age we are. They want to get pummeled with the fuzz. And, yes. and I'm happy with it because I don't really give a fuck either. It's like when you said, fuck it, I want to play for myself and myself and I and I want to be happy. I don't give a shit if anybody cares. It's what people start caring. It's just. But the trends killed that whole garage because there was a killer garage thing in 1990 in Europe. 
Yes. Made. This is true. This yeah. is very true. We um yes, it was kind of it's interesting, isn't it? That new wave of kids come along. Because you're 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 gonna the album title and some of the, the tracks on Learn to Lose. Were, were you sort of just was it was it kind of quite a negative vibe that you had or a sort of there a bit was of a... weird that there was a you know, Sony was interested. There was like 13 major labels at the time that we interested in and what's going on is we were giving snippets of what we were laying down and everybody, we, we were trying to please all those 13 opinions. I got pissed off and threw all the faxes at that time and crumpled them up like a little basketball and threw them in a fucking trash can. But the record, I, I realized one thing, I went and tried to remix it. We laid it down the tape and I had a Marshall amp and an SG. You don't, you don't, garage, you know, it should have been a Gretsch and a Fender Twin. And the the pro I probably I did want to go back and re-record because then you lose the bond of the first take and everybody's playing together. I should have. I could have easily gone and mocked it and played the Gretsch and it would have been a much fun garage record. But it's sludgy and grungy. It sounds like Van Halen or Bachman Turner Overdrive or any band on Sub Pop. We were trying to please getting signed because three of the four guys, not me wanted to be on a major label and I didn't want to, you know. It's tricky, and that, isn't it? That's where Learn to Lose came out, and that's why it's called Learn to Lose. Yes. <laughs> it's, what, what it's, I, not, it's not a masterpiece, okay? No, but interestingly enough, I find that, um, or found that an artist or band who've got that their thing in one decade, that zeitgeist moment, sometimes struggle in another decade. Like, you know, and the example I often have, actually quite a lot, but David Bowie in the 70s, you know, 10 albums, 10 years, you know, produces various, does films, but he's got it. But then in the 80s, he he looks like he's following. He's wondering who to and, who uh, he should yeah. get. He's fishing to get the, the record sales to maintain status or get dumped yes. off the label or what have you. That, Dylan did it too. Bob Dylan fell for the yeah, bullshit. Yeah. But in the end, you know, Columbia was even talking about dumping him. And like one of the, my friends at work there, he was uh, one of the senior uh, lawyers there, Marvin. He worked there for over 30 years. He's my neighbor. He taught Clive Davis and worked for Walter Yetnikoff, signed uh, Dylan Springston, uh, you know, John Denver, Jefferson Airplane for RCA, all that shit. And um, he said that there was a time where they were conspiring to cut Dylan. And, you know, they said, hey, there's certain artists you don't want to cut. You want to keep them forever. And Dylan, of course, is one of the best poets we've had in a century. The last century, he's 82 the other day. So it's like, but like to, to talk about cutting him in the 80s or 90s, you know, he had what, Infidels? I think there was a couple of good records and then he kind of faded for a while. But then he had Saved and some of the Christian ones, which are good records, yes. but it had that, 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 that cocaine snare. I think he also had Sly and Robbie, didn't he, on the on one of his. I can't read. Yeah, I, who knows? I mean, those Stones are, they had those problems. Emotional Rescue, come on, after that. They were fine. They were searching, you know, because they were you know, they wanted more record sales. Everybody, nobody wants less record sales. No, you know? I know. Undercover. It's yeah, yeah. Even though I've played that record recently because I bought the later album's box set, so I I, I wanted to re listen. Some of the records are pretty dark. Tattoo You album is really good. I didn't realize how good that is. It's a great. It has eleven hits on it. Yes, it's no, it's it's it, it, it is good, but we we love the uh, was it Mick Taylor? That period with Mick Taylor was when they were just amazing. Exile up to 
Excellent. So when when it came to sort of like 94, 95, you'd released your album Get Our Way. Did you at that stage, did you just feel like the the motor had started to sort of crash? No, actually, Get Our Way. I got Eric Lindgren involved because I wanted the same studio we did rock and roll on and learn to lose. And learn to lose was such a dud there at that studio. I wanted to kick the owner's ass, hire Eric, and we start creating our own like reverb by using a pencil, a spool of tape on the pencil and hold it and run it through the machine. And we create our own echo chambers and stuff. real primitive stuff, yeah. technique. And we made it more of a 60s record. And I, I felt it was a great comeback record. We went in with five songs and left with 23. And we worked all the way through Thanksgiving. We worked uh, 19 and a half hours, five days straight, came out with 23 songs. I would be writing riffs and Michael would be in the studio, uh, the vocal booth. And I saw him with all these papers from his notebooks all spread on the floor, like it was pornography. And it's like all these papers. And he's like trying to match up lyrics with the riffs. That's how, I mean, we do, we are like, you know, Jagger, Richards, Lennon, McCart you know, Simon and Garfunkel, Michael, we're both a great songwriting team. We're not good without each other. So we have to learn to live with and love each other. <laughs> and we, we, we got through that too. We got through our differences and we do keep ourselves away from each other. So when we do get together, it's precious. Yes. And I think that's where it keeps the magic. It keeps the magic going. So and the, the Get Our Way was a good company. If Get Our Way came out after rock and roll, we'd have gone through the roof. We we blew, the Learn to Lose kind of killed us. Yes. I have to it's say, so great cool. album cover as well. It's a brilliant cover. Yeah. So um, so then 95, you know, there's this kind of gap. Is this a period where you sort of focus on the label and, and sort of other projects? Yeah. So how did you know that? Because that's exactly what happened. Did I say it ever before? Because how how do you know that? Because that that did happen. I don't know. It was a guess. <laughs> there is a gap. There was a gap from ninety five to two thousand because Michael walked off the stage New Year's Eve night in ninety five ninety six and says, "Like David Bowie, I'm is never planning to spy." I'm, I, what did the Bowie say? Remember he walked off in seventy four. This is this is the last song we'll ever yeah, do. It, that's exact. I have it. On, it's on. It's on probably YouTube. There's some of that footage from the show and i'm like what the fuck is he talking about he he was having problems you know like with heroin at that part which i did not know and he was sliding and, and i i did not know that i just thought he hated me and i said well then you know i said what the fuck's that about and he said i'm not i'm not coming back to get hip i quit you know i quit the band I, like he he went off a deep end for four years you know he he got in inter an intervention from the police and he did some jail time and uh, I, and then we did Living is the Best Revenge. He goes, you know, Captain, I feel like getting back together again. And I said, well, fine. And then we had a meeting and the meeting was really horrible because they wanted to all put the record out on their own label. They did what the stigma of get hip, mind you. And I says, well, here's the budget. You need about 30 grand. You need a van. You need the back line. It's going to be like 33,000. And I said, okay, everybody, here's my, here's my 7,500. And they all pulled their their wallet back and put it in their pocket so it ended up being on get hip it was a it was a slap in the face to me i thought it was rather rude yes god but did i you ended up did... being really good friends with the bass player the new bass player was smith and tom came back in the band from rock and roll and he's always been the same person you know like 
what's in it for me. And, you know, if he thinks there's going to be a rock star ending to it and money's going to be made, I'll play. He was a great drummer. Don't get me wrong. Solid backbeat. But, you know, when it comes to getting a job, that pays better and not sacrificing for the love of music, then it's, you know, that's why he's the head. I called him, I nicknamed him the head, Han head. Because his <laughs> head was big, you know. Yes, God, that sounds Michael like... and I, we, we stuck together. So Living is the Best Revenge was a good comeback record. And things start kicking into gear after that. And then there was another sabbatical. It took us five years to write, uh, here we are. You know. Yes. Did uh, did Michael completely clear, clean up by that stage or was there still kind of relapses? Yeah, he, you know, he drinks a lot. You know, he'll take pills, some silly pills. And if those pills are Oxycontin or fentanyl, then it could be it, that's bad. I don't know. I, I'm not with him every day. You know, no, it sounds, it sounds... He, he, he's a cat on a hot tin roof. He's he's on the the, the tight one. Tight yes. He, he likes it. It's like Jim Morrison, you know, a lot, very similar to Jim Morrison. Yeah. There was a book that came out by a guy called Patrick O'Neill. I think he was a roadie for Dead Kendys and he he got the heroin addiction, then he got the jail time, then he had to get the cleanup period and then sort of get straight and yeah, it's tough, it's tough, isn't it? You know, you have to you have to really have something to focus on not to kind of slip back cuz he was like, you know, he was slipping back straight away. Oh, believe me. I missed the that that catapulting between twenty and twenty three. You know, I used to like breaking into pharmacies and getting quaaludes, handing them out to the neighborhood. And you'd say, okay, well, if you drink on them, you're like you feel like Gumby. You know, yes. and the townspeople are watching me like a rubber man going across the yard. You know, it's not. It, you know, you think it's funny, but you don't realize you're the spectacle. You're in. You know, and I was just Greg. You know, this neighbor. <laughs> that wasn't like Greg from the cynics, but it's it's fun to get gone once in a while. Every once in a while, I still, you know, man up and get gone. But you know, I, I'm not driving behind the wheel anymore. <laughs> but I, I did get stupid. Uh, what was it? Three, four months ago, I drank nine Manhattans and I drove home, and that was that's that's it for me. No more. No. Uh, I was yes. I was okay. I'm very good at it. But you know what? All it takes is that one fuck up. And it's not, it's not good. No, you don't. Yes. There was, um, yeah, that sounded like a scene from that previous one. The chemist is um, from Quadrophenia, isn't it? Where he breaks in and um, starts stealing the pills in the chemist, which well, is the, quite the sweet. Moon were one of my favorites and they used to call him leapers. Keith Moon was, him and Pete were my fucking heroes. Well, think about it. They were the wildest two in that band, you know. But yes. then John Hitmissel, what he was doing below at 55, getting an S&M workout in the in the hotel room in the and they were supposed to open up their first show in in las vegas and he had a heart attack yes they found i think they they found that it's not a bad way to go it's a good way and they found his arteries were like 95 percent, you know third up so it was amazing yeah yeah yeah. he was gone just on one sort of slightly tech, not technical, sort of artistic. The cover of "Living Is the Best Revenge" is a is a beautiful cover. Whose idea was that, by the way? Um, it was mine. The we had Sean Brackbilt was the photographer at the time. Actually, he's really doing well right now in New York City. But we just said let's let's just take a picture. We need a band in the front, you know. I said let's just take a picture of the tambourine. And we put the red crush velvet backdrop on it. And then Steve, um, not Steve, but um, 
Smith, who ended up being one of my best friends in the group, um, he did the font, you know, the cynics kind of based on the old No Place to Hide single sleeve cynics logo. It's similar, but he stretched it out and re, you know, kind of kept the same idea, so to speak. You know, yes. I think we wrapped then we wrap it around the tambourine or something. I mean, I I'm embarrassed or I'm asking you. But, uh, <laughs> it's a great, it's also a really lovely font that you use as well, which I thought was yeah. quite quite beautiful. Because on that, because then you do a big tour in Europe, don't you? Oh five, oh seven, where you you were you're sort of touring the album um Here We Are, which has got some amazing songs on it. So has the band like has it. has it the didn't stuff... do well. It didn't do well. Do you know what else happened? Is um the record didn't come out. It was supposed to come out before the tour, like two months before the tour, so we could network and promote it. And and uh, the record didn't come out until we got back. So it, you know, we were touring on a five-year-old record. But see, we've been playing Cine's Greatest Hits for the last 12 years, and we're actually playing for as many as 10,000 people and headlining, which... So something's good happening, you know. And I guess if you hang around, like Andy Warhol said, if you, you get your 10 minutes of fame, if you hang around long enough, you know, you get 10 minutes of success, you know. Yes. But that was Aunt Andy. Listen, he ripped off that banana. The, the mat, I can't believe it. There's an ashtray that has that banana. I can't believe he didn't get sued from that company, that marketing company that made that ashtray. I was at the, they had they have the Velvet Underground exhibit. I'm um, over here. You, you can't see me, right? I'm over here talking with my hands and pointing. At, uh, it's, you're, I think you're recording this. Yes, I'm. I'm definitely recording it. But um, no, but you um, can't see me. You can't. No, see I me. can't see you, unfortunately. But no. are you are you pointing towards the Andy Warhol Museum at this stage? Actually, he's running around over my shoulder. Yeah, yeah. The museum's a couple blocks away from us. Um, mm -hmm. They have a Velvet Underground exhibit. It's really, really nice. It's really. God, nice. did that have a massive impact then? God, it should. You know, the Warhol kind of um, artistic. Uh as far as what the well just the, kind of inspiration having somebody who was that famous who's been such an icon in your he's time. actually you know over a period of time the last couple of years i get teary-eyed because i realize that i've thrown shindigs here at get hip and we've lived it like his factory and we are the factory in a way in our own right and i also i also was inspired by um Art Rooney, the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers football team, because he always treated his football team. He tried to educate them in business. He says, you know, you can blow a knee out in two, uh, two years and you have no money. You're broke. Yes. You have to come up with a second career. And they'd be offended. Like, who do you think you are? And he was the owner. And he taught them all how to run a business. And, you know, whether you're black, white, he was there was no, I mean, no racist bullshit there he was a good man one time i think it was a rookie um wide receiver came in theo bell and he goes oh he was taking the trash out he goes oh you must be the janitor and he's smoking his big cigar to clean it. it's the president of the damn football team he goes well i do a little bit of everything around here and he closed the door like play he could have he could have tore his head off fired him right and he was like so nice and i learned from that because in one of the classic lines because I, I do do a little bit of everything Yes, absolutely. So those are my two role models, but Andy wasn't really, you know, I didn't discover the parallel situation until maybe 10 or eight years ago. So, 
but well, I'm, I'm beaming because it's two great roles. And Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers is another, you know, that had the Mr. Rogers neighborhood, you know, little kid show to bring up kids. Yes. Uh, educate. He made me sleep. I'd like Sesame street when I was a kid, but I, I, something about Mr. Rogers sucked me in. And I look forward to like, if I had a lunch break from kindergarten or grade school, I watch Mr. Rogers. Of course, I watch a three stooges at seven in the morning too. You know. <laughs> so, so a couple of years ago we all subscribed to was it the disney channel to see the the beatles eight hour film you know of them recording their last ever album and they concert yeah. on the roof did you you mentioned at the beginning you know that seeing them on the ed sullivan show had a massive impact did you kind of watch that film and sort of also relate to your own kind of creative process with with the band and sometimes you know, making... it could be that yeah it could be that weird it, it it's going to let it be the last well last year we tried to write or so with the four of us it, it's a little weird um i I don't want to get into the let it be thing. I I didn't watch. I only saw a little bit of the first part and I have not, I have yet, I, I want to watch it from beginning to end, but I don't have eight hours, you know. No. But I'm going to have to get a DVD or something and then watch it every night. Yes. You know, two hours every night. And I want to do it, believe me. But um, I don't know. I don't know what, you know, I... Do you? I, I mean, with 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 the band at the moment, do you feel that there's something completely magical that's that that what happens between the two, the members? I I don't know. It's really up to Michael and I right now. I have a couple riffs on my phone that came out of nowhere. I grabbed my guitar a couple weeks ago. Went home. I was really pissed off, which sometimes that works because. There's a lot of angry cynics on it. I grabbed a fucking guitar and it, I grabbed it. It was it actually grabbed an A chord. I grabbed the neck and it was a, an A chord. I went to D and somehow I played E or E seventh and I strummed and all these, these words start coming on melody. It like, it, I, like something channeled through my body and it came out. And I happened to have the phone on. I went to another riff. So I need another one and another one. I had four songs in a row, bang, bang, bang. And I happen to have the record button on. And that's magic. I have one that sounds like it could be on Tommy by the hook. Right. Excellent. I was hearing the French horn, the harmonies, the some of the lyrics came out, pretty much the song is done, and the chorus all flew out in like three minutes. I can't explain it, but 12 years have gone by and nothing's happened, you know. So you got to wait for that stuff to happen. And, and and thank God I'm still alive and, and patient. But 12 years is a long fucking wait. But all of a sudden we have six killer sketches and we have the four new ones. That's enough for an album now. You know? Yes. Now I called Michael. Yes. I said, look, Michael, it's time. We got to get off our ass and it's time to write. It's time to get together. Yes. And um, I mean, the last album, Spinning Wheel Motel. What was the atmosphere like with the band when you were putting that together? very similar where you know we're not all you know what i what i really miss is not having the full band here at i have an event room here at, at the warehouse where concerts could be played we have a stage and a pa it's a perfect atmosphere to rehearse every night and, and get together speak easy whatever have a couple of drinks you know it's a great vibe and everything 
and the two guys are in Spain. So what I have to do is come up with the riffs, send them the riffs so they have an idea. They're really fast. They adapt and write the bass and drums. It takes no more than one or two takes. That, you know, when we went in with Here We Are, Michael and I had a couple sketches. I didn't want to go. I canceled the flights, canceled the session. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Bullshit. Last time I saw Peebly's drums fell off the fucking mop, the stands of his drums, and they rolled out into the audience. He was 18 at the time. Well, 12 years trans transpired. He, he ended up being a really badass drummer. We go in with Slide Over, and I play. It's almost like Here Comes the Sun, right? It's a B, my da, 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 da. I, I go and just play acoustic. And it was like, as soon as the bass, they let me do the one by myself. As soon as the bass and drums came in, boom, it was a full band. It was like the Beatles revolver. Right. I'm like, what the fuck? I felt this power. That's when I knew that I found four that became one. And they're my brothers. I will not play with anybody else other than them. I, I, I really don't want to. We used to have a couple different cynics lineups, you know, rhythm sections that would go and do it just to make Michael and I available. I'm not doing it anymore. OK, they'd have someone would have to die. And I don't want to say that because I curse somebody. No. But I love my four guy. I love the four. I love the band that we have. And we've been together since 2007. So that's what that's that's 16 years. Yes, that is quite something. But you we're did... not here. What I miss is playing loud with the amp and you get the feedback and the hollow body guitar starts going you know when you get that fire and energy and now you got angry songs so we're lacking that's why you're getting some ballads every record because these are songs i write in my pajamas on a 12 string or six string at 6 a.m you know yes, some of the I'm... best songs come out at six o'clock in the morning you know and how do you i mean with with the band with the label is it you who's who's signing the bat the bands kind of hearing you know certain records or people send records in and you think right that's it we'll definitely put them on the label right i i did that a lot um barbara did it too but i you know if i heard the mainliners it was just an accident all the fucking promos i got in i decided oh, randomly open one mailer and i go mainliners from sweden what the fuck's this and it was absolutely brilliant and i signed them it was just that was random Things like that happen. And there's things I, I didn't open up the White Stripes packages. So does that make me an idiot? You know, I don't know. The Von Bondies were like the little brother band. And I didn't open them. They were bugging me two, three times. Hey, I didn't know I had three packages about the Von Bondies in my warehouse. First class mail. I go and see them in Cleveland. Oh, you guys are great. I'd love to sign you. And they're probably wondering, well, you're out of your mind because we've only been sending you tapes for like a half a year and you didn't pay attention to us. I mean, it happens. He's, I'm overwhelmed with clutter, you know. Yes, I would imagine, so, actually. But there's a lot of bands. There's plenty of bands that I, I see live that we play with that I end up liking. And that's really when you see them live and their attitude, that's, you know, like the subsonics are great. They they work hard. Nashville Pussy's good for what they do. They work hard. But I never got to sign them, even though now all their records, they thought the grass is always greener. And, and Ryder, the guitar player, was just here last week and I missed her. But it was funny because all their records are on major labels. One Mercury, this one's on Capitol. And guess what? They don't have the rights to it. And they don't have any interest in pressing the record. So they're going and, and selling either CD burns or have merchant like material shirts and, 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 and uh, hoodies to sell. But they have none of their records, which is terrible. Yes, that is a bit strange. It is a bit. And what's well, like... going on everywhere right now? With yes. Bands. So with... 
the band you've got at the moment, the Ugly Beats. This is from Austin, Texas. They're they're currently right. on tour, aren't they? Right, they're in Spain right now. Barbara's managing them, and they're actually doing way better than I expected. They're selling out shows. They sold out the festival before the Mummies night. Was it the Mummies and who's playing Saturday? The Mummies are headlining and the Kaisers from Scotland. Right. Yeah. So the Ugly Beats night sold out right away, and I was like, "Wow, get it, Bart is headlining. That's that's fucking great." You know. Yes. And um, they haven't had an album out since 2019, so they're not touring with a new album. Unfortunately, they they are touring because of COVID. They couldn't. And 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 the record sat here, so you know. It, I mean, we did okay. We sold a couple hundred, but not a thousand. You know what I mean? Usually, you want to sell a thousand right away. So yeah, they're making up for it now. And and Jake joined the group. He rejoined the band, and he's in the Black Angels. And you know, they're playing for five and ten thousand people. And he puts a little chutzpah in the group. You know, he puts a little. He get. I just said today to Barbara, he put little balls on the table. You know, it's like. <laughs> All of a sudden, they're a little stronger band, and you know she goes. I have I have yet to tease. I'm going to say, hey Jay, you know, thank you for you know you you put the energy back in the group. You know. Yes. So on in your your European touring, which country? Because often a a, a a band will have a country that really you know they love. Sometimes it's Italy, sometimes it's Spain, what you know, or Germany. What 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 country in particular loves the singers? Always Spain has always been number one um italy's getting better the last couple tours we did there and the last you know we did uh, about two or three in italy before covid and then we did the makeup gigs and added many on so we just we did two tours after covid uh and played italy and it was good france it's been really good and it should have always been good but don't have, i mean it's had its ups and downs but for you know early what 90 was great and then 92 wasn't bad but uh 2007 wasn't fantastic but the last few european tours have been great norway there was one moment in norway in 2007 i think in 12 that were almost giving spain a ride for their money you know they're, they they were the second best Yes. So Sweden's not we can't seem to cut Sweden too well. There's something going on there. I mean, we we do good, but it's not bonkers. It's not no. sold out. I don't know what the problem is there. Do you find um, that with the Germany's with... kind of weird, you know, it has its good areas. The hardworking steel towns, that type of stuff, you know, labor, blue collar, like the cynics. We also do well like in Hamburg. Um you know, uh, where else? Uh, Berlin, you know, the, some of the key cities we do well. But, do you uh, find, because I was talking to the guy, one of the people who runs the Las Vegas punk bowling weekends, and they, yeah. you know, they, they always have a lineup which kind of mixes kind of new bands, new punk bands with old punk bands. Are you finding a younger audience are discovering you now with, you know, the kind of curiosity of things from the past? Well, you, you, you say this, okay, the... Younger could be anybody at this point than us. So <laughs> yes. it's like, so you know, you got to watch out. Um, there is, a, yeah, the festivals that we played, Motor Beach, and all that. Uh, the last since 2019, we're on a roll. 
before COVID and the damned, I heard rumor, the dams management got wind, you know, about, you know, I guess some of the promoters were saying, Hey man, you got to get the cities to open. And we were supposed to, that reunion, we were supposed to open for them in the undertones. Right. That'd been a great triple bill, June, 2020 and it all fucking came to the screech and all. So, but, um, yeah, the audience, the, the, there's a younger audience, no joke. I mean, we see all the older people, you know, they've grown, the same age as us and there's the bald spot in the back of the head and they're still wearing a cynics or fuzz tone shirt but i'm not i'm not going to knock it because i go i go to any kind of call you know i like music i go i don't give a fuck if i'm 63 you know i go out you know have fun you know yes absolutely stacy probably hasn't seen me get high yet but stacy i don't know if she wants to be around me she'll be my designated driver maybe michael and i both <laughs> but yeah so, there's a lot of i mean i i'm shocked though there's a lot of young kids out right now you know? yes and, and, I'm what happy did, about it. and what did your what did your mum think of your you know music career because you, you know you, you sort of mentioned her at the beginning having this kind she, of you know taking us to well when i when i graduated from high school she was bummed out that i was pursuing playing and making this my living and she comes up to me because greg what are you doing playing your guitar I said, what are you talking about? She goes, aren't you going to play polkas and get married, you know, get your wife pregnant and have kids and play polkas on the weekend? Now, I probably would have made more money listening to her, but I don't know if it's a good <laughs> idea. I was totally disappointed because I was like, wow, she gave me the sandbox my whole life. It's because I wasn't at the corner of 13 getting high early in my life and being a juvenile on a corner. She can hear me going bling, 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 playing Black Sabbath or whatever tunes upstairs she knew that i was safe i wasn't out you, you can't you can't hear the guitar I, I didn't have a ghost up there playing guitar for me while i was getting high smoking marijuana so that bummed me out that it was a fraud a little bit you know it was a little like playing and a little manipulative and i was i was emotionally crushed about it but in the end when she passed away she left the will and my brother had to read it and she goes on with them talks about them and then I found out the truth. We never really talked about it. She just always thought, oh, I worry about you. You know, you're always struggling and blah, blah, blah. I said, let me have fun. She sees me playing Russia, you know, so something must be going okay. Yeah. So, and we won all these friggin' awards in the city. And that, that impressed her because she's on, you know, we're on television like the Beatles were. But it's not Ed Sullivan. It's a local television. But in their eyes, it's the same thing, you know. Yeah, but it's it's all glamour, glitz, you know, hype, whatever. But in the will, she said, "Greg, I just want to say that you should be okay with what I'm leaving behind. You get the house and blah 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 blah." She goes, "I can't tell you how proud I am, and I, you, you achieved way beyond my wildest dreams." And I, you know, she never told me to my face, you know, but I actually had a hard time trying, you know. I was on the verge of, you know, holding back tears and crying, you know, and, and, and I, I, when my brother's reading it, of course, he was getting jealous, but I was like, oh my God, my mother loved me. You know, I didn't fucking know because I was out playing all the time, you know, just, she knew I was always working. She would say, why are you doing get hip? I worry about you. You're putting these records out. You should get out of work at McDonald's. That's job security. So how do you like hearing that shit when you're sweating your butt off, working your ass off for the company? going out 230 shows a year and your mother tells you you got to work at mcdonald's when you're like living your dream i made a living playing music and, and selling music you know 
it's not helpful it's not it's that when you're young you know you you just want someone to have your back don't you nobody really did i think that you know push back michael had that support his mother still supports him to this day but um i always you know my dad was killed early so i didn't know if he was going to kick my ass as a semi-pro boxer if i was bad i know one thing if i got busted and did all those drugs while he was alive he'd have fucking killed me so you know I was blessed that he was taken because he would have fucking killed me. There's no doubt. Okay. He was total <laughs> straight, you know, uh, like Benny Goodman, you know, Benny Goodman would straight edge. He'd give you the laser beam stare across the room. If you misbehaved, if you uttered or peeped something negative, you got whacked. You know, it was a disciplinarian basically. Yes. What but nation- I, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your like 16 year old self starting out, you know, just a bit of worldly advice is, you know, with all the, all the things that's happened to you. Is there any anything in particular that you would have just, oh, yes, that's a good one. Even if your 16 year old self ignored it. Well, if I had to give advice to anybody. Yes. I, if I was a parent, for example, I would say anything your child really has uh, uh a drive for and wants to be, you need to make sure that you at least got to work and, and aid and abet to them being that person. Now they may fade out and say, oh, this is just a fad. You know, maybe the kid's searching and it comes off a scatterbrain. I would never put it down and I'd always try and, and, and my mother kind of put a roof over my head and let me play in a sandbox. It wasn't until I was 17 and I was already on my way that she broke my heart and said, you got to play polkas, you know, but it, if so what she got a kick out of it. I think, you know, I, I know she's there in spirits. Oh yes. Anytime she's there, I pray to her. I get, I get a response all the time. God, that's amazing. Amazing stuff. Amazing responses from dad too, from my father too. My God, you've had a lot to process in life, haven't you? Well, there's been a lot of fucked up tragedy stuff, but you know, I, I look at it this way. At first, I was very selfish. You know, I, I lost my father, my best friend got electrocuted and my girlfriend had drowned in five months. And I said, you know, that's when I catapulted and got fucked up for a while. And punk rock got me through it. But of course, the drugs took over. The intervention from the police saved my life. Then I had to find myself. All of that's hard knocks. Now I look at it in reflection and say it's a fucking learning step to be a stronger fucking person because there's harder and more crazier shit down the road that you got to be prepared for. And it's been nonstop crazy. Okay. It's been nonstop, but you know what? I enjoy when the fun, I laugh harder, I play harder, but, and I mean, not just playing music. I mean, just play like work hard too. It's you appreciate it more, you know, and, and there's been adversity. There's been more crazier stuff happening, not as violent anymore. The last five years, it's finally calmed down, and I don't want—I don't—I I wish not. I have to pray to block that negativity, you know, just to keep that shield, that positive vibe going. So I pray every night. I pray every morning that I see my face in the mirror when I'm shaving. I'm still alive, and I have to do the best that I can. That—that that is the best advice for any child that wants to be something. The parents have to encourage it. They have to, they can't say, I want you to be a doctor. I've seen that ruin so many lives when they want, the parents want you to be something and the kid wants to be a a ballet dancer or a musician or an artist painting or a construction worker. Don't, don't put them down for what they love. They they should be doing what they love because it never seems like a day's work. 
Yeah. And, and to me, a get hip, as hard as Stacy sees me work here, she's only been here a little short period, but I I fucking do 19 hours a day, seven days a week since COVID. I finally had five days off this last week after, what, four years? Yeah. We're talking 18 hours a day, seven days a week. No day off. Indeed. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Greg Kostovich. Forgive me the time for that interview. Um, if you want to find out any more information, I will put their link to the website in the notes below. This has been The C86 Show, David Eastall. That's me. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive and groovy please and also um, yeah all these have been archived on spotify itunes podbean it's true have a great week stay safe